0: Wow, we're at Friday. And then we run over to Bud's Beach and we're standing there and they tell us to interlock arms and face the ocean. They're going to surf torture us. So we're like, okay, you know, just moving through the evolution. And we get right to the fringe of the water and they tell us to stop and halt and about face. And we turn around and there's nothing and there's nobody but an American flag stuck in the ground floating. And that was when I got my why instantaneously. Because why did they choose to show us that? It wasn't like we got a massive finisher medal or a trophy or a medal or any of this stuff. It was they showed us that because so many men and women have died for our freedoms to be here to do what we're doing and we're going to carry that torch. It was everything. I was so fired up over it. And then all of a sudden behind that, all the instructors come running up from behind the berm on top of the berm, screaming and cheering and fired up. And the, the commanding officer, Captain Smethers, gets on the megaphone. His dude's a legend, and he goes, Congratulations to you, future Navy SEALs. How Wick is secure.
1: <laughs> Hi, welcome to The Climb. This is Bob Werma. I'm here with my co host, Michael Moore. We have the pleasure of having Ryan, aka Birdman Parrot, join us today. He served eight years as a Navy, U.S. Navy SEAL attached to SEAL Team 7, and is the founder of two nonprofits. Sons of the Flag, and Bird's Eye View Project. Ryan, welcome, and thanks for joining us today.
0: Well, super excited to be here. Thank you guys for having me.
1: So for a little context here too, for Michael and I, we had the pleasure of being introduced to Ryan from our good friend Ryan Hyman down in Fort Worth. And I know we'll get into it and talk about it a little bit. I had an absolute blast last, what was that? Was that September last year that we did the, the uh, event with you, Ryan, down in uh, outside of Fort Worth?
0: Yeah, I think it was November. And,
1: was that November? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was, I've told everybody about that event and all the fun that we had there. Somehow Ryan and I won that. I think it was rigged, but that's okay. It was a fantastic time. And we'll, we'll definitely talk on that and some of the other cool projects you're doing. But I think the best way and our favorite way to start some of these things is start from the beginning a little bit. Who are you? Where'd you come from? Where'd you grow up? And kind of give us the short story of how you get to where you are today. And I'm sure we'll interject there with a lot of questions.
0: Certainly. Well, I really appreciate, every, you know, any time that I get an opportunity to share, not just my story, but the story of the things that we're working on as a team, I'm truly grateful because giving us the platform to be able to share this with your constituents, that's a big deal for us. So we care about that and we're grateful for it. Background on me, it's crazy. If you would have asked me 20 years ago, 25 years ago, do you think you'd be where you're at today? I would have looked at myself and laughed because I was heading in a direction, bad path. I was not passing any subjects in school. I was really just lost in my own life. And it wasn't because I had a horrible upbringing or I had just nobody around me to help or no friends or whatever. It was purely because I just didn't care. And so I found myself in sophomore year of high school, failing multiple subjects in school. I was on a trajectory to not graduating period. I had been threatened by my principal that I needed to sign a work release form and then go to work in the industrial field in Detroit, Michigan, automotive, because I'm not cutting it. And none of it mattered. Like, okay, so what? Who cares?
1: That, those comments didn't set you straight. No. It wasn't helping.
0: No. It wasn't it fear, and it wasn't like I could care less. It was just so lost in my own nonsense. And I played ice hockey. I mean, when, in Michigan, you grew up, you learn how to walk, you learn how to skate same time. Right? <laughs> Yeah. So it's just, I always had this idea that I was going to be in the NHL, but I knew that I didn't have the skill set to make it. So for me, it was kind of just like this. I know I'm going nowhere, so I'm just going to let it ride. And that was terrible. Was, I think back now and I freak out about it too. Cause I'm like, my God, can I imagine my life? If I had followed that trajectory where I'd be today, would I be here today? It was great. Cause, uh, was uh, a Marine who is a Vietnam Marine who was my motivational psychology teacher in sophomore year high school, Mr. Tom Barnes. And he came in the room one day and this guy is like this boisterous dude. He's six foot five, total skinny dude. Wears the Marine Corps bifocals, got the nice haircut, just always dressed apart and was a hundred miles an hour. And he used to run around the room all the time with the American flag, just screaming America and Marine Corps and all this stuff. And you're like... Yeah. Okay. Cool. Whatever. And that was really the introduction to the military that I had because, you know, both of my grandfathers served in World War II as most did. They were very quiet about their service. So I had a huge admiration for the military because of my grandfathers and just the way they carried themselves, but I never investigated any further than that. So now I'm meeting this boisterous Marine and I'm like, well, I don't want to do that because that guy's psycho, right? He's crazy. And it's just, that's not me. This one particular day, he comes into the classroom, and he's, instead of being boisterous and 100 miles an hour and just motivated, he just grabs the American flag, walks to the front of the room, holds it. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, there's only one thing better than the Marine Corps, and that's the United States Navy SEALs. I mean, I turned my head, and I was like, what did he just say? First of all, there can't be anything more than his beloved Corps. Secondly, what the hell are the Navy SEALs? You're talking early 2099. What, what it, we never heard of them. He makes it sound like these dudes are inhuman. He paints such a visual picture that I was just like, oh my God. I think it's the first time that I actually paid attention for an entire class in my history in school. So I was like, oh my gosh. Of course, I stayed after class and Mr. Barnes I want to be a Navy SEAL. And he just violently laughs at me. And I was like, you can't do that. You're my teacher. You can't laugh at a student. And he's like, okay. Ryan, you're not even passing my class, and it's an elective. How the hell are you going to pass some of the toughest military training the world has? And I was just like, "Uh huh." And so that was like my answer, my rebuttal, right? He said later on, he said he saw something in my eyes, something that fired him up that he'd never seen from me before. And so he went to the whatever the library and grabbed a book. And the next day, when I showed up to class, there was a Reader's Digest magazine sitting on my desk. And it's called The Making of an American Warrior. A guy named Jeff Wright, who was a Marine, got on honorably, and then enlisted in the Navy to see if he had what it takes to survive SEAL training. And that depiction right there told me everything I needed to know about SEAL training. Okay, it's super hard, it's elite, it's unique. You have to be selected to go. This is super tough. I'm fired up. It was the first book I ever read cover to cover, it was like seven pages. So I was pretty proud of that, you know? <laughs> <academia> there. <laughs> You know, I'm starting to work it, starting to get back into it, and I was smitten. So, of course, what I do, I go home, talk to my parents, and I'm told my mom I'm being a seal, and she's like, "You just go do it, honey," and she has no clue what it is. And. <laughs> Talk to my dad, and he's like, What is that? And so he Googles or not Google back then, America Online dial up modem. So he goes on and and then, <laughs> then he gets to like Navy yeah, exactly. Gets the Navy SEALs, and it's first thing I think that came up was this like an 85% attrition rate. And he goes, You know what? They have an 85% attrition rate. And I was like, Well, I don't even know what that word means. Is that good? That, that's a good thing, right? And he's like, like, You're out of your mind to want to do this. And so from that point, it was really just talk. You know, Talk is talk. And I would go on for about a year and a half of just in my mind saying I was going to be a Navy SEAL and all that stuff. I went to the recruiter station, talked to them. They gave me a bunch of bogus information on, oh, yeah, SEAL teams are great, which they knew nothing about the SEAL teams. And they couldn't even give me a, line, like a clear line path to how to get there. So it was kind of just there. And then I wasn't doing anything about it, though. I wasn't getting any better in academics. And I certainly wasn't training. And then 9-11 happened. And that was the catalyst for me to get up off my ass and go do something because I knew that myself, I was not going to change the world and I couldn't stop from what just happened and I couldn't fix it. But maybe, just maybe, I could be part of the solution so that never happens again. I felt so much rage and fire inside me that I left class right then and there when I saw that second tower explode. And I went to the recruiter station and I talked to the Navy recruiter and I said, Hey, I don't care what it takes. Just help me enlist in the Navy, help me figure out what the path looks like to get to SEAL training. I'm in. And I was too young to join at that moment. So I had to wait a few months, but I would enlist in the delayed entry program right after that. And I would start training pretty hardcore. And it was really that. It was my teachers. I mean, I I can say this now that they're both retired, but I went back to my teachers and my government teacher. I I was miserably failing his class. And he says, Did you enlist in the Navy? I said, I did. And he's like, Show me that paperwork. So I brought my delayed entry program contract in. And he says, Huh. And he opens up his logbook, his grade sheet, and he sees it's just like F, 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 non complete, F, 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 F all the way through. And he's just like, Ooh, stellar. He goes, The very bottom where it says the final grade right now, as of right now, is an F, and he erases it, and he puts an A. He goes, If you're willing to risk your life and go enlist during this time when we know we're going to war, I'm not going to stop you. So he changed it today. And he says, but you're going to do the work. So every, he got with all my other teachers and got me on a program to get my stuff together. They didn't all give me A's. They made me do all the work. And every day after school I was in the YMCA training people struggled me faster than me. And that was my life. I didn't care about dating. I didn't care about, and I didn't even care about my sports at that point. It was just purely like train, 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 get my academics to where they needed to be. Nothing else mattered. And, it was 2002, right after graduating high school, that I would uh, get my shot to go, and I would go to Navy boot camp in Chicago.
1: Ryan, I want to interrupt because I, I wanted to ask you something. Like, what came to mind there was, and I want to want to go to, continue going on the path, but like, what resistance did you get? Family, friends, any of that during that time? As you were like, I'm going to do this. Did you have resistance from others that were saying, "Hey, Ryan, I mean, there's other ways. There's other things you could be doing."
0: You know, I think I was very blessed where everybody knew that I was kind of the outlier in the family that needed some direction. So I think having me tied to something was giving a lot of people hope. Good. So that was great. The other side to it is I think most people just didn't know about what I was going to encounter. So we were all blind to it, myself included. Like, mm-hmm. okay, what does it really mean to be in special <laughs> operations during the time of war? Nobody knows. And nobody really knew anything about the, the SEALs or the special operations. So we be, that blindness also helped. The only resistance I got was from my father, and it wasn't bad resistance. Just a dad to his son saying, you know, this is a pretty hard deal, and if you fail, I'm not saying that you can't do it, but if, if something happens, are you going to be okay? It's just father-to-son stuff. So I think that was really the only hard stuff. I never had a question. I never had a, a conversation with myself, too, saying, what if I fail? And never even considered it. It's like, I am so oriented north towards going to seal training and that was my goal like i'm going to get to seal training i didn't even think about graduating seal training but no resistance really it was just but some friends some friends used to make some jokes like i'm going to be a navy seal and i'm like do you even know what that means Or like i have no idea what that means i'm like hey, <laughs> shut up
2: right <laughs> <laughs> b- before you continue on the path i want to ask a question too like if we if we think about the six inches between our ears is either our greatest you know Inhibitor or deterrent. And, and I can see it light up. Like the second that you started talking about that feeling that overcame you after 9 11, I can see it light up in your eyes, but our viewers are listening to this. Like, give us some more insight into what that just felt like at the time that got you from this kid that was failing out of school and being told need to go in the automotive industry in Detroit, Michigan to the, the elite of the elite inside
0: our armed forces. You know, I, I always make this joke when I give speeches publicly, I say, uh, anybody who's hiring, I'll submit my resume, but not for a job, just for fun. And it says Walgreens photo printer, U S Navy SEAL sniper. So it's definitely a major upgrade <laughs> in the categories of work. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of funny how that happened. I was actually a Navy SEAL before I could legally drink a beer. So just kind of funny how that stuff happens. Yeah, so the 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 power, the feeling—it wasn't so much like trying to enlist and get into the program. Was getting accepted into SEAL training that was the huge catalyst for me to really feel something. Because again, going back to it, you have to be selected. You have to go through a battery of tests to even get looked at, and then they have to go through that huge list of people and say, "Okay, what are the real? What's the guys that we truly feel got a good shot here?" And those ones get selected. So. My track record does, I prove nothing to anybody nor myself. I had anything of what it takes. And I was in boot camp and I was getting close to the end of boot camp. And this, the first Navy SEAL I ever met, Senior Chief Fitzhenry, this dude looked like a SEAL and he talked like one, and he acted like one, and he was one. So, of course, it makes all sense. But he came into my boot camp vision and screamed my name. And I ran up to him, hallelujah, Senior Chief Fitzhenry. They said, hey, Parrot, you still want to be a Navy SEAL? Or you still want to be a Frogman? I was like, more than ever senior chief. And he goes, well, we're looking at your scores, going through your academia, looking at your, your tests, uh, your physical fitness stuff. You did a good job in all of it. We're just not sure that you're the quality of candidate we're looking for. And I'm thinking to myself right then and there, like self-doubt immediately comes in. And I was like, of course not. Why in the hell would I be a candidate for you? I mean, I was printing photos, being threatened to kick out of school, failing everything, had no motivation. Why would I be good for you guys? This is all going through my head in like a split second while my heart is sinking down to my stomach because about to tell me you're not going. And now I've got four years obligated in the Navy. No shot. looks to the rest of that boot camp division. And then he looks right back at me and he goes, I'm just fucking with you, brother. Welcome to SEAL training. And I was like, (laughs) I (sighs) I was like 19, 20 years old at the time, whatever. And it's just like, I can't believe that I just got this blessing. And what it taught me right there and then is if you truly do work hard, you can achieve it. And that's not just that silly saying that everybody says. It's simple and true. If you want something, go after it. Dedicate yourself to it. Mission focus, focus on that, and you will get it because i had no i was not an exceptional athlete i am not a scholar i had no track record towards going that direction in fact quite the opposite so why me because i fucking worked for it it's that simple and that's the problem today is that there are so many people that truly do want something but are not willing to go for it and so it's just there for the taking it's like everything out there in the world is there for the taking you just got to go for it so i learned that That moment, I learned that hard work does pay off. So yeah, I got accepted into SEAL training. And I was like, holy crap, this is unreal. I cannot believe this. And then I had to go through um, what they call an A school. It's basically a rate or an MOS in the military. So you have to have a job in the Navy, even though you're going to SEAL training, if you get the contract. Because if you fail, if you get broken, and you leave SEAL training, you've got to do something for the Navy. So I chose aviation ordinance, which is putting the bombs on the bottom of jets, fighter jets, it was the shortest school in the Navy to get the butts. It was four weeks.
1: So you had to go to this school first before going to the SEAL training?
0: Yes. Back when I went through the program, there was no direct line to SEAL training. We had to be selected and you still go through a Navy rate right first.
1: I want to make sure like time-wise, this is how far are we into the war at that point. Because you're, you're probably, what, two years in now at this point? What's kind of the time frame? I'm just trying to kind of put that timeline in my head a little bit.
0: Sure. So 2002 is when I went to boot camp. And that was right after war kickoff, t- 2001, 2002. Mm-hmm. So right at the catalyst, right? At kind of the kickoff for Afghanistan and then Iraq following. And then I found myself in SEAL training by 2003. There was a couple years of war before I had actually gotten to a SEAL team. But it was interesting because... I don't know anything different, but the reality is that boot camp and the instruction and all that had shifted from a, let's create a sailor to we're legitimately all going to war. So now things got pretty serious. Because at that point in time, teams were going to war. And when I got to SEAL training, the instructors weren't messing around anymore. Now they're like, these guys are, we're training you for war, dude. So we got to get serious. And by the way, I'm going to be leaving the instructor billet to become a SEAL or a team guy again. I'm going to go back to the teams and I'm going to be working with you. So I want to make sure that you're a quality candidate. So there was, it was, it was interesting. And, you know, I was so young that it was naive to how brutal SEAL training could truly be. You know, it's, the instructors don't have to necessarily yell at you to get a point across. They can say something in the the nicest and the sweetest way possible because you're in such agony and pain that it just seems like it's hell, (laughs) you know? So it's kind of easy lifting in that front. Like, is that law getting heavy? <laughs> 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 like 300 pounds overhead for four hours. It's really heavy, you know, and I'm, you know, 160 pounds or I was 140 or 50 going through buds. But anyway, so the biggest, I think the, the first eye-opening experience for me was senior chief FitzHenry saying that to me, but then getting out to a school in 2003, beginning of 2003, January ish, I got what well, they have Bupers, which were your orders. And so you'd go log into Bupers online and you would find your orders. And so I couldn't do it because nobody had laptops. You know, we were, the cell phone had just come out. So I had to call my dad on 1-800-COLLECT and ask him to go log in on my account on his computer to Bupers and tell me what my order said. And it said, Bud's class two, four, five. So that was my next order. So I legitimately was going to SEAL training next. So I was, it was like official at that point It was so exciting. My dad's like, I can't believe this. Like we were just talking about this year and a half ago, two years ago, whatever. And you just got selected, man. Long way to go and a huge attrition rate ahead of me, but Holy cow. So I always love telling this part of the story because it really just kind of sets the tone for what I really saw and what it's like. So like get done with a school, it was four weeks. It was great. I got to learn something about the Navy. I always had something to fall back on. But again, I left Aviation Ordinance School, and I was like, I'm never going to think about it again because I don't want to do that. I want to go to BUDS and be sick. So when I started, when we flew out to San Diego because SEAL training is in Coronado Island, we touched down. It was Wednesday night, and we touched down at night. and We get picked up by the government van at the airport, San Diego Airport, and they drive us across the bridge. The first time I ever been to San Diego. So they drive us across Coronado Bridge, it's dark, it's chilly. I mean, for those who haven't been to San Diego, even though it's a beautiful state and you can do anything year-round, it still gets chilly at, at night. So we cruise across the deal, across the bridge, and then we shoot on over and we're driving around Coronado Island and we come up to SEAL Training. And when you pull on base, there's nothing to look at. It's not a visual phenomenon to go see SEAL Training. It's really a training command. So quite boring for the viewer, unless like how weeks going on. We come around the corner and we're driving towards the quarter deck, which is where Buds starts. Every single student will walk through the quarter deck when they begin. And when you retire or you leave the command, you will walk outside of the quarter deck one last time. So pretty cool stuff. Go through the quarter deck, walk straight through past the gate guard, and then we walk into the grinder. And the grinder is where it all starts and where dudes just get their asses kicked. And it's dark. I'm chilly, I'm already shaking, and I'm not wet, and I'm in my clothes, my gear, and I'm not even allowed to do anything. I'm just there to check in. And before I could see them, I could smell these guys. We're standing on the grinder, and you see the guys. It's Wednesday night of Hell Week. I had no idea. There is just a handful of dudes left. There's a line of helmets to my right all the way down to the bell where people quit. It's getting real. And I see these guys running past me one by one and they're sandy and they're soaking wet and they're shaking and they're miserable. And some of them have blood on their foreheads and that because they've been rubbed raw and they've got tons of other chafing everywhere else. And they're exhausted and they're beaten to a pulp. Nobody's looking at us. They all have this 10,000 yard stare. And this one dude, the last guy in that that group, turns and he looks at me and he just sticks his tongue out at me like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, wow. He's still alive. That's cool. And it was just this attitude where I felt like I belonged, you know, like that's, I think the chaos, the craziest chaos creates some of the funniest humor and really builds those ties and those bonds. And so that's exactly what he showed me. And I was like, I love this guy. I don't even know who he is, but I love him and I'm super excited to be here. And even though I'm terrified and that was that, that was my first visual is like showing up and within three minutes of being on the quarter deck and then at Bud's, I see how weak. And just a few guys left. I'm like, this is crazy. So of course, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, now it's getting, what do I, do I have what it takes? And yeah. So it takes you about a week to two weeks to really go through all your medical checks to get classed up. So they got to do a bunch of battery tests to ensure that you're going to be good to go. They kind of teach you about like protocols and etiquette at seal training. And then once everybody arrives and they form up the class. You'll start with about 180 to 200 students per Bud's class. So you don't know everybody. Don't, 85% of the guys that were there that went away, I probably knew five or six of them. You know, I didn't even know that the rest of them even existed.
2: Ryan, is that attrition rate that you mentioned still accurate today? Like, Has that withstood the test of time or has it
0: seesawed back and forth? No, that, that attrition rate is absolutely exact. I mean, the, the problem is, is we weren't doing much recruiting. And so it was just that we don't need you. Like you want to come here. It's a 100% volunteer program, fine. But we don't necessarily need you. And during peacetime, you can keep the numbers where you need to keep the numbers. But during a wartime, war creates death. And we lost some teammates. And, you know, it's and, and you have a burnout rate too. Like how long can you war? before you're fighting your own battle in your own head. And so you start to get guys, you start to lose guys, and then you start to have guys get out and you really need to start repopulating. So the standards should never change and had not changed when I was in. And for that, we still had a high attrition rate because it's just very demanding job. (laughs) I wouldn't realize that even in SEAL training until I got to the command. Yeah, it's definitely a big attrition rate. But then again, you know you don't want a wimp who's going to be on target with you. It's like, you know, I I'd just like to quit right now. I mean, that's what seal training is really for is just weed those out. So, you know, like it, you know, this is the worst scenario in the world. And I'm laughing right now because it's oh a hundred miles an hour. You know?
1: I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking Ryan, cause we've met in person. Like you just have this unique personality and like, I'm imagining this guy running by you like sticking his tongue out. And when you said that, I'm like, that's kind of like Ryan, like that guy. Like I've never even seen the guy. And I'm like, that's kind of like Ryan when I met him for the first time. Like it takes a special person to do what you went through. And I mean, I can't even, I can't even appreciate setting foot there. Like I couldn't even probably get myself to go there. Right. Like just to do that takes a lot. And then to get through it, it's just, you know, and I can never say it enough, like, thank you for all your service. I mean, and what everybody does, you, you just can't say that enough because it takes a special person to do what you did. So I just want to make sure I, I hit on that because I, I don't want to forget that. So
0: I really appreciate it, brother. You know, I tell you what, it's so I always say it to simplify things in order to make it through SEAL training, you just got to be stubborn. You got to be really stubborn. Okay. Like no matter what, anybody tells you to do something, just show up and put your foot in front of the next one just be stubborn about it like you don't have to be arrogant or cocky it's purely just stubbornness like the only way that they can take this away from me is if i take it away from myself right i'm the one who has to quit they can fail me if i'm performance if i'm complete shitbag but if you're there because you want to be there you're not going to be that guy the problem is majority of people that show up don't truly want to be there but there's a lot of people out in this world that could become seals and other special operators that just that's not their thing so, you know, it's like, I'm humbled by the full experience. It, it is just because I have met so many guys in the community that are far better humans that were born to do things that I can't even conceive or imagine. Just to have been able to sit on the same bench with them for a period of time was like everything for me.
1: Brian, when you say like, I'm the only one who has to quit, you're there. Did you have those moments where you wanted to put that helmet down? I mean, like. Were there moments where you were close?
0: No. So I never had this idea that I was going to make it. I never thought about it. I just was focused. I think this one thing that SEAL training teaches you much about life is it teaches you to focus on the moment and really okay. the evolution at hand. And that's something that's so hard for us to do as humans is – You know, we've got businesses, we've got calendars, and we've got people that we know answers to and things. And so it puts us into the future where seal training—it's like if you don't pass this 50-meter underwater swim right now, you're not advancing. So you can focus on you know four weeks from today, but it's irrelevant because you might not be here. So really, be here. So that was everything for me was to focus on the moment and just be in that evolution which is a beautiful thing. So because I was so hyper-focused on that specific evolution, I really never thought too far ahead. And therefore, I never thought about quitting, nor I was just like, what do I have to do to succeed through this evolution? Because they do get harder. The evolutions get harder as you go continually through SEAL training. The times get faster as you go through first, second, and third phase of SEAL training. So your swim times have to advance. Your O-course times have to advance. Your run times and soft sand with boots have to advance. All of these things continually have to go forward so it's the standard grows, which is nuts. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot there. But I always looked at the guys who are quitting because I saw quite a few of them quit. We lost a ton of guys the first hour of Hell Week. And I just couldn't understand why because it was like I was still standing there and I'm nothing. So wh- what's going on here? And I realized now that there's a degree of people that just showed up who didn't want to really be there. But I was like, man, and that
1: first show- hour got them out of there.
0: Yeah, I mean the first hour is supposed to be fun and it was actually fun in Hell Week, but after that it gets pretty brutal, like really brutal. Which I'll walk you through. It was uh so Hell Week is the fourth or fifth week in, in SEAL training. And it's really like, let's weed guys out quickly, get them out of here so we can really focus on the ones that want to be here. And so the the weeks leading up to that, we used to do four or five weeks of indoctrination, which was you can't get uh you can get wet, but you can't get sandy. And you're really learning what it's like to be a student at SEAL training. So you're doing physical fitness, you're doing O courses, you're doing some runs, some swims, you're learning these things, you're learning how to do side stroke and breast stroke and all this stuff. And you're getting after it, but they're doing it in a way that's kind of building you up to starting day one of SEAL training. So you do four or five weeks of indoctrination, and then you kick off with SEAL training, starting day one of BUDS, first phase, and they annihilate you. I mean, when they drop the hammer, the first thing you do is you get wet and sandy. You roll yourself into a full sugar cookie, they call it, and you just realize that when that sand is attached to your wet body over time, grinds your skin right off your body. So you always have cuts and blisters, and you get cellulitis and infections, and it's just painful. And it never stops. And every time you jump in the water after you get those infections and those openings, the the salt water just eats you and burns. And those are the little intricacies that people don't even think about, let alone the the physical and the mental stress that you go through. But they just open the hammer on us. I mean, you do like four-mile time run, soft sanded boots, two-nautical mile ocean swim in 50-degree water. You're doing an O course. You're doing four hours of log PT or eight hours of log PT. Boats, you're doing... Swims out in the water to buoys. You're doing underwater knot tying, drown proofing life setting. You're doing all this stuff. You're just hammering down evolution after evolution after evolution, some of which is pass fail. You are getting annihilated the first day. And it's an eye opener for so many people. And when they get done with the first day, for those who didn't quit, they're just like, yeah, I don't want to wake up tomorrow and do this shit again. And I can see that. I can totally understand that it wasn't for me. Like, I was like, what's tomorrow offer? But that for a lot of people, that was just like, hell, I didn't, I didn't really think this through <laughs> crazy. And it and it really does every single day it gets harder. And then, you know, you start having bigger, bigger evolutions that mean more that actually are past fail. So you start to have those stressors like, okay, I've got to pass this. And some are more technical than physical. So you really, ha- it tests everybody and everybody has a weak point. So I was really fast at the O course and I was a pretty decent runner. I wasn't the greatest swimmer though. Swimming for me was pretty difficult because it's long, it's hard, and I wasn't a swimmer. Some guys really fell at the O course because it's just not their thing or runs or whatever it is. Everybody has a weak point. And it exposes it, completely exposes it. And the beauty of SEAL training is it not only exposes it to you as the human, but it exposes it to everybody. And you don't want to be that guy looked at as being the shitbag or the guy that's the low-hanging fruit. You want to add your value to the team. So as you operate as an individual in steel training, it still forms you to the team and you either make it or you don't.
2: Ryan, what are your thoughts on the mindset that you obviously have and embody, and it's taking you where you are today? What are your thoughts around the genetics of that versus
0: your environment, your experiences, developing it over time? So I've thought a lot about this. i have never thought that I was some genetic freak, and I certainly don't think I'm you know, genius by any means. I mean, don't tell my wife any of this, though. She's because that's complete complete lie. Of course, what I say to her. But honestly, it's mindset. It's how deep are you willing to go? How much can you handle in your mind? Because your body will fail. It doesn't matter if you are at the premiere, if you're a Michael Phelps, or you're just a phenomenal athlete. It will crush you in seal training, and you're going to fatigue because you're just their muscles. Your brain's also a muscle and it will fatigue too, but your mind is so much stronger than your body. So that's really the, the caliber of what they're looking for is where do you come from? What's your background that's really built something into your system? Most of us come from broken homes, it's strange, but you know, broken home, meaning either divorce or truly trauma at the house as a young kid that develops some of that, that strength and that grit and that resolve that we're looking for, was picked on as a kid that added to the mix for sure. You know, it's like, go back to all those kids that picked on me in, uh, in elementary school, middle school, and be like, hey, punks, you want to talk now? Let's go. <laughs> you know, but it teaches you, like, that stuff doesn't matter. And, you know, it's like, I hope that they find some inner peace with themselves for being assholes when they're younger, although it's irrelevant. But I think all of that builds us up into that point where we're now ready to truly show what kind of fruit we've got inside. And I think a lot of people have this. They just don't realize it or have never been asked to tap into it. So I think it's, it's really driven by the mindset. Like I'm willing to go the distance. I've seen guys in SEAL training with broken femurs and, and shattered legs who are trying to still run. And you're just like, get some, dude. And it's like, you know where they're at mindset-wise. They're hungry. And that's cool. It's really cool. So four to five weeks of SEAL training going through different evolutions and pass fail and I would call my parents at the end of each week just to let them know like hey I can't believe this but I'm still here this is unreal and I really was having fun with it I loved it I loved the idea of there were some standards that were the same like the runs the swims neo courses but then the evolutions would change and there were different ones that you had to tackle and conquer so I really enjoyed that process and just the like the, the fact that I was at seal training was mind blowing to me still I was still overwhelmed with joy that I was there you know And so I'm like, my God, I get paid to get my ass kicked. This is awesome. You know, I'm so lucky. And that's another thing about SEAL training that I love too, is that, you know, you get paid 50 grand, you know, a year. And so because it's so mission focused, it always teaches us that the value of a dollar is the value of a dollar, but it also doesn't matter. Like I've got more than just a financial thing. This finance doesn't matter to me. It's about the job. It's about the mission. It's really about the people. That they they create the the people that they bring in, so we finally get ready to hell week, and you know this is obviously the catalyst right here. You make through hell week, you're probably going to be a seal.
1: Ryan, how many at that point you got? You said 180, 200 people there. Like we're going into hell week, how many people are going into hell week?
0: We started seal training with about 180 some, 185 or six. They said Um, going into hell week, we were probably about 140, 130. So we're starting to slim down because I think the thing is you're going to lose the week, the week, week, week that just are there for the wrong reasons right out of the gate, and then you're going to lose some people to some injuries, some stress fractures, things like that. But most people will hang on for their ever living dear life to get to how week, and then how week exposes you. <laughs> it destroys everybody. There's nobody in the history of how week that's walked through and been like, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. So, you know, we had a lot of guys who were there on the fringe of just like wanted to make it to hell. We gave it everything I got and I applaud them for it because it's hard. And then basically Wednesday or you're sitting there Sunday night, you make the phone call and this was the biggest thing in my life. It's, it's called your spark. This is what I call it. I call it my spark. What's that one thing that drives you, that motivates you to really dig as deep as you possibly can in the times that you need it the most? And this can be the biggest meaning in the world, or it can be the smallest thing in the world. And for me, it was purely just calling my mom and my father and saying to them, I made it. I made it through Hell Week. And it's because of you sticking with me, no matter what, that gave me this opportunity, and thank you. That was everything for me. So I was like, I'm going to use this as my fire. I'm not going to let anything get in my way, and we're going to go. So I made the call to my parents beforehand on that Sunday early, and I said, Hey guys, I just want to let you know, I'm getting ready to go into hell week. My parents are divorced. so I had to call them individually. We called each one of them. And I was like, I'm getting ready to kick off with hell week here. And just, <laughs> I'm going to give it everything I've got. And I will call you at the end of the week, regardless to let you know. And I meant it. And so from that point, I went to, I went to the, we had tents that we set up on on the uh, beach and that's where we stay. And five and a half days of hell week it is, and there's, No sleeping. That's a lie. It's a joke. You cannot fully fall asleep within five minutes. They mess with you. They wake you up. They screw with you. You don't sleep. You're five and a half days of movement, 50 degree water the entire time. You are beat to a pulp. And I beat, I mean, you beat yourself. You're doing log PT and you're doing boats and you're doing water swims and you're doing evolutions where you're backwards crawling up a soft sand berm, pushing a log with your feet that's 200 pounds and just anything you can possibly imagine that doesn't make sense is there they seem to call the weather gods during how and make it just more miserable so it's a little bit cooler you know it's i don't know how they do all this but it's just <laughs> a fest right and so we get ready and we're in our in our tents and then it was about like seven eight o'clock at night and then all of a sudden just this noisy erupts. and it was these explosions and this gunfire and this chaos. And we run out of our tents and the first first instructor's just pointing at the ocean like, you know where you need to go first, got gents. So of course we ran all of the water out of our tents and jumped in this fifty degree water at nighttime and then ran over to the sand and curled ourselves up in soft sand and then ran over to the grinder. And they're just spraying us with fire hoses and they're shooting guns, you know, blanks in them and Every time you run into an instructor group, you have to like drop down and do push-ups or pull-ups or sit-ups or whatever. And then every time they'll tell you to go run it back and hit the surf again. And so it's back and forth evolution, in PT and calisthenics, and it's just chaos. That's called breakout. And that's 45 minutes long. After breakout, they have you everybody out to the ocean. And that's where we stand in a line and we interlock arms, face the ocean, walk out to knee deep water, and then lay back. And it's called surf torture. And I remember there's just one spotlight from the beach shining down on us. in this black water, black night, can't see anything. And we're just soaking this freezing cold water up, shivering. And the instructor gets up on the megaphone and says, dudes, you've only been into hell week for 45 minutes. You really think you can keep this level of intensity up for the next five and a half days? <laughs> I watched like 20 people run and quit right there and then. It was unfathomable. It makes sense in theory. Like, yeah, I don't want to think five and a half days in front of me, but yeah, this is already getting, I'm already cold as crap. I'm already a little bit fatigued Whew. I'm Gonna have to play this game smart. And so I saw guys quit, but then every time somebody would leave right next to me and the chain was broken, somebody would interlock arms with me or I would do it vice versa. And I always had somebody next to me. So my thought was I may not be better than the guy next to me and they may not be stronger or faster or whatever, Any day of the week, but why can't I be just as good as them today? And so that was the kind of the mindset I kept going through. Now, during Hell Week, it gets brutal. I mean, it tests everything you have. There is nothing. If you're going to show up and graduate that, you're going to leave everything on the table. It is inevitable. So it gets harder every single day. And you're doing evolution after evolution. You eat every six hours. You're burning, they say, twenty to 25,000 calories per day. So you're eating every six hours. They change out instructor staffs every eight hours. So you get a fresh new instructor strap that's ready. they're rested, they're ready, they're ready to go. Yeah, kill. they're ready to go. <laughs> and they put the worst instructors on the same shift, which is the C shift, and it's the night shift. So these guys come out wearing Viking helmets, drinking Red Bull, ready to crush and kill, and you're just like, Oh god, this is <laughs> like awful. And, you know, there's so many stories about Hellwake that are just brutal and You know, you start to really see the class start to tone down, and then by day three, day four, I mean the class is small. You only see a handful of boats moving at that point in time. Everybody else is gone. You at that point, you didn't realize how many people truly quit. But we started with 186 guys, something like that, and at the end of how week we were down to roughly 30 people, something like that. So. My favorite part of the end of it, though, was, you know, we're getting a day five, five and a half, and we're coming back towards Bud's Beach. We get the boats in our head. You're just broken. You're smoked. You got really nothing left in the gas tank, but you're still moving. And the instructors get on the microphone and like, dude, sorry, but the, sealed, uh, the Bud's class, two classes before you, they're graduating today. So we unfortunately have to shift you to the right 24 hours. Two things went through my mind right then and there is one, they're not kidding because why do they need to the kid? Two, oh, it's Friday. Because you have no sense of time. You don't wear a watch. You don't get time hacks. You can't just go up to the instructor and be like, hey, can I get the time hack real quick? Just want to see. What <laughs> what
2: just yeah. curious.
0: Yeah. So that was insane when I found out that, like, holy cow, it's Friday. This is insane. Because you lose your mind. You lose concept of time after like Wednesday night, Thursday morning. You just don't have any idea. You have visuals, you see things. It's crazy. So wow, we're at Friday, and then we run over to Bud's beach and we're standing there and they tell us to interlock arms and face the ocean. They're going to serve torture us. So we are like, okay, you know, just moving through the evolution. And we get right to the fringe of the water and they tell us to stop and a halt and about face. And we turn around and there's nothing and there's nobody but an American flag stuck in the ground floating. And that was when I got my why instantaneously, because why did they choose to show us that? It wasn't like we got a massive finisher medal or a trophy or a medal or any of this stuff. It was they showed us that because so many men and women have died for our freedoms to be here to do what we're doing. And we're going to carry that torch. It was everything. I was so fired up over it. And then all of a sudden behind that, all the instructors come running up from behind the berm on top of the berm, screaming and cheering and fired up. And the the commanding officer, Captain Smethers, gets on the megaphone. His dude's a legend. And he goes... Congratulations to you, future Navy SEALs, how we could secure. (laughs) It was just like, oh, my God, why me? You know, look around and you just see a handful on each side. Like, why me? Why do I deserve this? So grateful. And we're so tortured, so broken. You just turn to your buddies and you give them a hug when you can't really move much. You go through your medical checks. But for me, everything from that point, I was like, I just got to get back to that phone and make that call. I want to close the loop on that because that's everything. And I made the call to my mom. And my dad Say, hey, I just want to let you know I love you. And I'm so grateful for everything because <laughs> your son's going to be a damn Navy SEAL. I made it through Hell week. And of course, <laughs> both of them crying. I'm still emotional right now about it. Like, woohoo he's screaming, and he's like, I'm taking my girlfriend off tonight. This is awesome. So I was like, cool, I'm going to go get some sleep for the next five days. So, <laughs> and that that's that. And you don't get much time off before you start again, and, you know, still training continues on, and you start be getting more technical, and, you know, this is a very elongated story that I'll shorten up by saying you got three phases of training, so after hell week, then you finish off first phase. And then you go into second phase, which is all dive phase learning, open and closed circuits and diving and dive medicine and physics. And then you go into third phase, which is all the cool Gucci stuff, the tactics and the shooting and the blowing stuff up and all the cool stuff. And then once you graduate SEAL training, you move to SEAL qualification training, SQT, and then you go to your SEAL team. And then that's when the fun really begins. You become an operator.
1: So Ryan, is there one thing that you could say you learned about yourself during that time that you're like Maybe you didn't know before something that you're like, man, this just, I learned this about me. And in that time when you're in that training or even in that hell week,
0: I, I, the biggest thing I pulled away from that is to learn to believe in myself, uh, something that I think a lot of us hide from, or we just don't quite truly do it. And I believe in myself 100%. If I'm going towards something, I'm going to get it done. Because I know that God has given me the opportunity to do everything in my life that I need to do. It's provided for everything. So I just need to move forward and do it. So from that point on, I believe in myself. Like Nothing is unachievable. I probably can't beat Usain Bolt in a sprint at 100 meters, but I'm going to sure as hell try.
2: You know, Ryan, back to Bob's comments around just our appreciation and admiration for who you are and, and what you've done and what you've sacrificed for all of us. You know, you mentioned your, your grandparents and I'm a big historian. Both my grandfathers fought in World War II. And I think there's a, a huge reason why they call that generation the greatest generation. And what I'm fearful of is like my kids. Thank the Lord. We've had so many long periods of peace time, like they're only hearing about the greatest generation because I tell them like, that's not even really in the history that they're learning in school. Not that they're not getting a lot of great history, but you know, I just, I really want to pause and, and have our listeners appreciate and understand like without people that have, you know, your spark moment and you knowing that you were born to do this, we wouldn't have what we have. So it's like, thank you, man. It's, it, it's just awesome. I don't know how to say it any other way.
0: Hey, I appreciate you guys for that. And I'll tell you what, as long as you strive down any street and you see American flags still flying, you don't have anything to worry about.
1: Like where do here, like transition wise I, and Ryan, anything you want to hit on, I definitely want to make sure we get to your passion projects of today. Do we want to hit on any time when you you're served or anything like that? I mean, I, I want to be, Sensitive to what you want to talk about and what you want to share as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, so people don't really understand the nature of seals when when they say, "Man, you you have the greatest job in the world." They're right, but they don't know why they're right because they think it's like, "Oh my gosh, you jump out of planes, you dive under boats, and you blow stuff up and you shoot guns." And I'm like, "Let's talk about that for a second. Let me fill you in on what that reality looks like." Ninety percent of the time that a seal has day to day operations or day to day job, it's not fun. It's hard work. It's a lot of exhausting work, and it's a lot of misery, right? When we talk about jumping out of an airplane at night into the ocean and diving to a certain place where you put a bomb on a boat and blow it up, let's look at the logic of that. So you're jumping out of a plane at night. You have vertigo because you can't see anything besides black. Complications can happen. You pull your parachute and you land in 50-degree water. It's cold. It's miserable. Everything's a damn shark in the water. And now you're underwater diving, a four-hour dive called an exhaustion dive. It's cold, it's miserable, you left nothing to look at and things bump you that you just don't know what they are. You finally get to that place, if you get to that location, plant that bomb, you swim out of there and you get picked up before anything blows up. It's a miserably long and hard job. And to do that constantly and to have to do it at the highest level of achievement, it's difficult and it's stressful and it's exhausting. So for that, we're blessed because we have the opportunity to do it, but it's not exactly fun, right? There are certain times that things are fun. The majority of it is just hard work. What makes it fun is the guys, the team around you. We make it fun. We love each other. We do funny things to each other when, during misery. So that's the reality of it. I served at SEAL Team 7 Alpha Platoon. I was blessed to go to SEAL Team 7, got selected to go to Team 7 because they do an NFL draft when you graduate. I was picked up for 7 Alpha. Spent my career at Seven Alpha, so I did three full deployments to Iraq. I did a small deployment to Lebanon and one to the Philippine Islands, and then I would go over to. After that time, I would go over to Advanced Training Command as an instructor for an Intel department until I exited service at eight years. My primary focus was I was a point man, so I was a lead navigator, and I became a sniper and a team lead sniper, which was my one thing I always wanted to do was be the sniper. I'm very blessed to get selected, to go to the course, and graduate the course, and then do the job. And my first deployment, I learned a lot about operators and just life because I was blown up in 2005. I was very fortunate where I was the least of the injured. I had shrapnel, I had burns. I was ejected out of the turret of the Hummer into the sky, and that's how I got my nickname, Birdman, is because I went flying. So it's a rad nickname, come on now, and everybody, it's definitely <laughs> <a> fact. <laughs> There's a lot of people in Texas who know me as Birdman that don't even know my first name's Ryan. And they're like, your name's Ryan? What the hell did you think my name was? They're like, well, I just called you Bird. Like, well, i okay, cool. <laughs> it's a pretty t- horrible joke that my parents named me Bird Parrot. But okay. So, <laughs> you know. But I learned a lot from that explosion because everybody got injured pretty bad and we had to work together in a serious manner because we didn't know if we were about to get ambushed and we were already bleeding. You know, Those guys were bleeding out pretty bad and we had to work together to save everybody and we did. We worked together really well. Everybody is alive. Everybody's living well today. We're very fortunate, but it rocked us. And this would create a frustration in me. I had a TBI and I would start to get very irritable and I would start to get very different. I go from being the surfer, happy-go-lucky type, which leads me into this project that I'm working on now. It would take me from being a happy-go-lucky surfer type, snowboarder, skateboarder type that could hang out with any crew, any crowd, and no problems whatsoever to wanting to fight everybody and being absolutely irritable. And I hated myself and I didn't want to be myself anymore. And I would drink all the time to just hide from myself and it wasn't going anywhere I started to, over time, start to get into different treatment centers like brain treatments to study my brain to find out what was going on because I was like, I can't just imagine that I went from being a happy-go-lucky kid that really didn't drink anything to now wanting to drink every single day. I can't just imagine that alcoholism would show up in my life this late in the game. There's got to be something here and truly was. I don't think that alcohol is really good for me. It's not good for me at all, but it wasn't helping me find and achieve the real problems that I had. So I started to get better. I started to fix myself and really work on myself, hone in on myself. And I got a call in 2019 that my sniper partner killed himself, and that was that that moment in life that unhinged me completely. Where he wasn't just my sniper partner; he was my true north. I say this all the time. He was a mentor. If you can, if your listeners are listening, if you can think about your mentor right now, think about them. They are bomb-proof. They're the ones that you go to for advice. You know that you're going to get something from every single time. It's sound. It's they're bomb-proof. They're not going anywhere. What if they do? You feel so lost, like you don't have a guiding force anymore. And you just want to crawl right out of your skin and you're like, I'm I don't know what, I don't know how to move forward. And that's how I felt. So, but instead of me deciding to completely detonate, all I did was I sat back in the seat I'm sitting in right now. I said to myself, what the hell are we missing here? And I came up with a thesis within the first 24 hours of this. And I was like, is it a brain issue or is it more than a brain issue? What if it's physiological? Because I've been through a lot of brain treatment studies and I can tell you this right now. Military is very good at breaking soldiers. They're very good at doing it. They're terrible at rebooting them. There's no reboot phase. There's no human performance. They're getting them fixed up every single time they need it. There's not a course curriculum on it that they're working through as part of their workup, so you wonder why after 20 years of crushing yourself, you get out and you have problems. It's it's logic, okay. I don't have to be a doctor or scientist to know that. So if you're broken and you get out and you're having problems, sure, that's one thing. So then to look at the number of suicides that are happening, and right now I think it's Boston University just did a study in 2021 that said that uh, since post 9 11. There's been just over 7,000 soldiers that have been killed in combat and training, 7,000 since 9-11. Post-9-11, there's been over 30,000 that have committed suicide. You look at those numbers and you say, is every one of those a traumatic brain injury? Maybe. Maybe not. Hard to track. Well, then roll that over to the fire service. The fire service are taking their lives at a cyclic rate, and they're not getting traumatic brain injuries. So there's something more at play here. So my thesis became physiology. If we're breaking people over a long period of time, their body functions, their brain. If their body's falling apart and their guts wrong and everything in their systems are working against each other, their brain's going to fall apart too. If you have a traumatic brain injury, that is a, a, a brain injury and a brain focus. But if you don't, there's more at play here. And so my thesis became it's physiology. Let's study that because it doesn't seem like most people are studying that. I pitched it to a buddy of mine as a doctor at Harvard. He's like, "Hmm, that's an interesting theory." I was like, "Okay." He's like, dude, you got to run with that. Okay, I'm in. He's like, I'm joining you. I was like, okay, I'm fully in. And I kicked off this project called the Human Performance Project to analyze and study human physiology. But the idea here is I don't care about making you a biohacking machine or the absolute best physically, the physical specimen you can possibly be. I care about homeostasis. Okay, so Ben Greenfield said it best. And this is exactly what we're trying to achieve here is I don't care what kind of house, what kind of beautiful mansion you want to build on your land that you bought. I care about the foundation. It doesn't matter if you build a beautiful home on a shaky foundation, you're screwed. So let's go back to the basics and let's create a manual that is simplified so that not only a child could pick it up and read it and use it to continue to move with true north in mind but also somebody could reboot themselves who has been broken because it's always about taking it back to the basics. Don't we do that? That's not what we're supposed to do. I mean, really, it's just about getting good at the basics, but let's take it back. Let's get to homeostasis. Let's make ourselves feel good again and action and function well. And then we can work on that. Like you want to put a beautiful home on that foundation. That's beautiful. Now go for it. See where you can take it. Let's get you back to normal first. So I created this project simply because of David. And the fact that he was studying brain and he was studying physiology and he wanted to know more and he felt like this was the best avenue at the time for him was to take his life. And so I want to answer that question. I want to go find evidence that we can actually action for people to help and carry on David's legacy. And so I've formed up a team of special operators, badass athletes, human performance studs, doctors, physicians, psychologists, psychiatrists. We brought everybody in the world to the works who have, number one, a solid attitude. Number two, a background as a subject matter expert in their field. And we all combined forces to create the Human Performance Project. So the first part of it is we are training all year long. We got seven test subjects. We're training all year long to get to a level of shape that's going to help us to get to where we're going. So we've been training all this year and then february 16th 2023 we are going on the 7x deployment and essentially what this is is we are going to skydive and or base jump land and run a full marathon and then swim in the water on all seven continents back to back in 7 days.
2: Ryan just repeat that one more time because that, that <laughs> needs to sink in for our listeners.
0: 7 skydives 7 full marathons seven swims in the water in succession on seven continents in seven days, 7x.
2: Ryan, a couple of things. When you told me about this in in one of our previous calls, like I had to kind of go back and just reread it several times before I even did what I did, which was send it to probably 25 or 30 people that I think really should go do this joint journey with you. If it's not this one, then maybe the next one or whatever it is, but that have the mindset not only to accomplish something like that, but also to get behind your important work. So so thank you for that. And, and my second question kind of goes back to your comments around what the military is really good at, and maybe just some more insight, like we have the most expensive defense budget in the world there's no argument that we are the superpower when it comes to defense, right? But since the beginning of wars in this country, when they're over or when your service is up, like we don't do a good job of taking care of our veterans. Is it embedded in our culture and it's just too hard to change? Is it because it's a small portion of the population, everybody wants to focus on childhood cancer. Like, I mean, what, there's so many important initiatives, I'm not belittling that, but what is it about us that leaves a
0: lot to be desired with with how we do that? I think twofold. I think it's a, a lack of foresight and a change in leadership, a constant revolving change in leadership. So this is not new. We've been to war several times, and there's going to be that cycle where people come back from war and... They suppress it. They put it away. World War II seemed to deal with it better than us because they just had to shut up. They had to shut up and get back to work, great depression, got to feed their families and just do it. They still dealt with their stuff. Vietnam came back and were shit on. And a lot of them probably did take their life. I don't have a statistic on that number, but I know that they're still messed up today. And so we know that this stuff happens. The problem is because of the change of leadership over time, it gets forgotten. This needs to be focused on completely as an out-processing piece or a department of the military that says, we're going to focus on the ones that are out already and really track them and take care of them and check in with them and ask them to do some mandatory stuff for the military as volunteers so they can stay kind of back between them. And then the lack of foresight. We're just not focusing on it. Like we put our mission set, like our money needs to go to this particular area now. It doesn't really belong here anymore. Guys are pretty good because they're lying on their test saying, I'm good. I want to stay in the platoon or I'm good. I'm doing this. No, you're not good. So it's a lack of foresight and a change, a revolving change in leadership. I think that are the two downfalls. I wouldn't press on the military saying you need to take things away. I think you just add, you add a human performance curriculum to every workup for every military unit So that they know every time they're coming back, they're going to go through that again first and foremost to say, okay, this is what I need to do this year. Continually take myself to homeostasis, and then I can chew what I need on top of that. So why we're doing 7X is to annihilate our physiology so that we can spend the next four to six months after that rebooting ourselves to gain that information, to put it in the manual, and doing the due diligence on simplifying the information so that a true 14-year-old kid can pick it up and say, I could do this. It's cost-effective. And I can live with two north in starting at a young age. And then for those people that really need the reboot, they can dig into that and say, okay, well, there's certain things that I need to understand. Unlike a 14 year old child, I might have low testosterone or I might have issues that cannot be fixed just naturally or might take a lot longer to do. What do I need to do? So real considerations. Another thing that we're putting in this manual that can be you know, somewhat controversial is we're putting a manual on Christianity in there because it's getting lost in translation. And people are just, there's a lot of atheists out there. There's a lot of people that are just not talking about Jesus. And I'm like, I believe, I asked the team, do you believe? And I'm like, we're gonna put an introductory piece in there, it's not the Bible, it's, I have been struggling with wanting to have a relationship with the Lord. I don't even know the first steps. Let's welcome you into the first steps. Let's give you the first steps. Uh, it's just like everything else in this manual, it's baseline first steps. So after seven X deployment, which is seven days, We'll come back and we'll start the reboot phase. We collect all the data, we put it into a manual, and then we make that manual public and global so that people can buy it, of which 100% of the net proceeds are going to support multiple charities around the world that support veteran and first responders. So it's a unique project. It's definitely a different take on human performance because we're not going to be the guys putting out the biohacks and all the cool Gucci stuff that makes awesome. It's about like, I want to live for the next 60 years of my life. And what is the back end of my life going to feel like and look like? And how can I make that better right now? So this is all in David's name. I fully intend to name the, me- the manual, the Metcalf manual. It's David R. Metcalf is the name because the story needs to continually be told because no matter what, whether he's here or not, he's still much for north and I miss yeah. him.
1: What can we be doing to help? What can our listeners be doing to help?
0: Well, there's a couple ways I appreciate you asking. Ryan did tell me that he said that you both are buying a seat on the plane. So I'm excited about that. And I'm going to hold you to <laughs> it. And I know where both of you live. I've actually got... That's <laughs> right. No, no, I'm just kidding. So, I feel
2: enlightened yet threatened all at the same time. This is great. <laughs> the
0: yin and the yang. You know, there's a couple ways that people can help. Number one, before we even talk about this project helping us, do something for your community. I mean, it's as simple as that. Like if you're sitting there and you are not involved in your community, whether it's veteran or first responder or just helping somebody in general, if you are that person that's not doing anything, go do something. That is so important. That's where we get to being neighborly again and where we have, you know, block parties and we start to be communal again. And We're missing that in this country. So help. Get involved in something. Secondly, how can you help? with this project one we are selling seats the seats are very expensive because this mission is extraordinarily hard to pull off and it's expensive so if you have interest in supporting that you can reach out to ryan at americanextreme.com and i'll have a conversation with you directly on what it looks like what you're involved in we are not saying that you're going to come run seven marathons and all that stuff with us we have put together an experiential treatment on each continent you can run a mile or two on each continent to do that fun, and then you're going to go do something that you would never be able to put together yourself. So, an experiential trip of a lifetime. And if you have interest in that, just email me at ryan at americanextreme.com and we'll talk through that. We are getting ready to set up an initiative for win the global trip of a lifetime. So, we're actually going to be doing a raffle where you can go buy raffle tickets at americanextreme.com. That should be up in the next two weeks. And you can go buy raffle tickets at a smaller cost for those of you who can't afford a big price tag to go on a trip like this. And then we will draw the winner, I think in mid-December, we'll be drawing the winner that will go on this trip with us for a fraction of what they would normally pay. So that's another way to get involved. And if you can't do any of that, our charity, birdseyeviewproject.org, is what we're going to support all the causes through. Our charity is a pass-through. And so we do the vetting on each charity to make sure that our money is not only getting diversified, but it's also going directly to the end user. And so our charities are good charities. So you can donate the Bird's Eye View Project and know that the money is going to go to the end user through our, eth- our ethics and our work to find out who these groups are. We stand behind our charities that we support. They're amazing. So you can donate there. So all of those things are easy to do. Not all are affordable, but there is definitely something for everybody within that package. And just be a good human being. If you've got something going on day to day and you feel that there's a way to help somebody in some way, shape, or form, and you're the one who's being called to do it, go do it. It's that simple.
2: Well, I haven't stopped my effort. I've, I've sent this out and the initial responses were amazing, which was basically like more, did, did your email get hacked? Like what is this thing that you're sending <laughs> us? Like, and then I was like, read it again, read it again and call me. And The the support is absolutely there. I've not gotten anybody to buy a ticket yet, but they're all going to get called out again after this podcast. And maybe I'll tell you where they live, too.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we make house visits. We're glad to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate you guys sharing this. You know, this is very near and dear to my heart. I kind of I lead with my heart and you can see that. I went into the SEAL teams because I felt a calling to do so. I got out. I've been doing charity work. And I say charity work. I started a charity right when I got out of the service with Ryan Hyman called Sons of the Flag for Burn Survivors. And I've been doing that for the last 10 years. So everything in my life for the last 25, 22 years has been service driven. And I fully don't intend to stop ever. So it's one of those things that I'm passionate about. And you know, it's what we all do. That's what we're on this earth to do. You know?
2: Ron, I'm going to throw a curveball at you because before we started recording, you said you, whether your own or being guests of others, you've been a thousand plus podcasts and you're well documented, not well enough. Uh, hopefully this podcast will, will enhance that even more. But being as well documented as you are, tell us something
0: that no one else knows about myself. Yeah. It's a great question. Nice curveball. I can answer that right now, actually. So my favorite color... No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) You didn't say how small it had to be. (laughs) So this is something that nobody knows yet. So I'll I'll lay it on you guys first. In the fashion of me trying to be the best version of myself, You know, I don't drink anymore. I don't do drugs. I've just been clean on that front. But lately, I've realized that I'm just not 100%. And there's something that I just couldn't figure out what it was. You know, I pray, I work out, I'm supplementing myself correctly. I've been doing blood studies and panels and I've looked at everything. And so everything's there and just something that just didn't feel like I was at a hundred percent. And I had the blessing and the opportunity to travel a couple of weeks ago to Mexico to do psychedelic treatment. And it's crazy for me to say it publicly because people know me as I'm a straight edge guy. You know, I'm crazy. I mean, I like to jump off a shit and have fun. But, and I'm a guy who's, I tried marijuana a couple times as a kid. And it just makes me so paranoid that it doesn't work for me. But I went and did the two most powerful psychedelics on the planet. And it was absolutely life-changing. And it's, for those of you who are listening, I'm sure you've seen a lot of this stuff coming out lately about what this plant medicine can do. I would say this, it's not a fix. What it is, is a reset. And could we be so fortunate to have a reset where now I can push aside all the BS and I can start really focusing on myself. One thing that I did achieve with the psychedelic medicine is that I love myself again, wholeheartedly love myself, where I feel like I'm bomb-proof again. I have enough love for myself where no matter what comes in as a missile is going to bounce right off of it because I'm shielded. So you guys are the first the first time I've ever talked about it publicly and I'm super jazzed about it. So Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you for sharing.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) I bet you that was a curveball to you guys. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that'll do it.
0: On that note, no, look, I think
2: that, I mean, there's, I've been reading a lot about it. There's a lot of research out there that we do need to embrace this movement of plant-based medicines and not look at them as some class one felony drug, like a true spiritual way. And I love that. It's not a healer, like just to reset. And the brain you mentioned earlier is, is a muscle, and all of us need a reset every once in a while. So kudos for having that curious mind to go do that and know that about yourself. I've had several friends that have done kind of spiritual journeys like that, and they come back more focused, more balanced, more complete, um, sure of themselves, back in love with their spouses or, or whatever they were struggling with ahead of time. So it's whether it's the, the veteran community or just our, our overall health as a, as a world, more attention
0: needs to be brought to this. So thanks for sharing. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll put everything on the table now and I'll investigate every single thing out there so I can continue to be, become a better version of myself. Thank you, guys. Appreciate everything. Michael, I think the
1: last question for him is your question. So why don't you throw the last one at him?
2: All right. This one's not a curveball. It's it's the way we end all of these podcasts. But I think it's especially important because of the life that you've chosen to live to, to think about this one. And, and we'll give you broad, broad stroke on how you want to answer it and, and what you want to attach it to. But there's the saying out there that it's not what you know, but who you know. And then we flip it around and say it's not who you know, but who knows you. So whether it's it's your wife or your,
0: your SEAL member. Who do you want to know you? Who do I want to know me? I mean, the first thing that comes right to mind is my children. I want my children to know all the struggles that I've been through. And I want them to understand that in order to get to a place where I can truly be their father to the highest level of my ability, I had to go through all of this. And I want them to understand that struggle and that pain and that frustration and the loss and the love and the happiness and the success. I want them to understand everything and I'm not going to hold back or hide it from them because that's reality. So my children who are six and three years old, I want them to know me.
1: That, yeah, that couldn't have been said better. I mean, and Ryan, what you're doing. I mean, I'm sure I can speak for myself, Michael and others. You're an inspiration. I love your passion for what you're chasing, the love you have for yourself, the love you have for your mission. Your mission and what you're doing today is going to change a lot of lives. And thank you for all you're doing from the bottom of my heart. I, I've i enjoyed our conversations every time we've talked and taken something away. And, you know, I wrote notes during down this whole thing of like, you know, there's shit I got to go do, things I got to go fix. And to have someone like you to have this inspiration, it's just, it's awesome. So thank you. You know, I always say like, I think, we're blessed to have certain people come into our lives that for whatever reason you're meant to meet people and and I look at you and I'm like, you know, we don't know each other that well, but you have an impact on me and and thank you.
0: I really appreciate that, brother. It was awesome watching you jump into an ice bath last year and we're gonna <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think my be- my favorite part of that whole experience was watching Hyman get his ass kicked when we were in the ju- – with uh, I forget his name that was doing the jiu-jitsu.
0: <laughs> yes, the Green Beret. Yeah, that, I heard <laughs> that was so of, good. I heard a lot of that. I figured that Ryan would get his ass kicked too.
1: So, <laughs> Are you guys going to be running that one back? Or are you going to do another version of that?
0: We're doing a new version this coming year, and uh, it'll be May of 2023. I was going to host it this year, but I'm just looking at this project and I said no to everything else in my life because it's got this project's massive and it's just, it's a lot. So I pushed it to next May. Gives more time for people to raise more capital to be a part of it. And then all that money goes to charity, of course. And then we go execute on something. So it will definitely be similar, but definitely, I would say about a thousand times better.
1: Awesome. It's going to be rad. Count me in.
0: In. Awesome.
1: I will be there. We'll get Michael out there. I might have to carry his ass on the running part, but we'll be all right.
2: Hey, man, as long as it's it's not too far, I can handle it. Um, Brian, you know, if Bob and I do this podcast out of out of a passion, but if we're ever wondering or doubting our why of why we're doing this, we're going to come back and listen to this episode. I mean, This is a story that is so well worth telling. And we appreciate the time you spent with us.
0: I really appreciate you guys. Thank you.
2: Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.